Shalom, Salam, and welcome to the History of the Land of Israel podcast. I am Shail Ben Ephraim, and I welcome you to the one podcast with the guts to survey the most provocative historical narrative in the world. Episode 10, Enter the Egyptian Colossus. Once upon a time, there was nothing but endless dark water without form or purpose. That silence was called Nu. Nothing existed within that void, with one exception. Heka, the god of magic, patiently awaited the moment of creation. From that silence rose a primordial hill, and on it stood the god Atum. He looked around and experienced deep loneliness and nothingness. But he had an excellent solution to the problem. He decided, as one does, to mate with his own shadow and have two children. The first was Shu, the god of air. Atum violently spat him out into the nothingness. Then came Tefnut, the goddess of moisture. She was vomited out by Atum, who was exhibiting some pretty concerning symptoms by this point. The two kids had their own ideas on how to fill the void. Shu brought life into it. Meanwhile, Tefnut brought order into the chaos. They were clearly two very competent kids, and they decided to move out of Atum's basement and do their own thing. After a while, Atum started to miss his kids. In an early display of helicopter parenting, he decided to spy on them. So he removed his eye and sent it after Tifnut and Shu. Soon, poor Atum was sitting alone on his weird hill without his children or his eye, and he contemplated eternity. Empty nest syndrome is real. Luckily for the abandoned father, his kids came back. And even luckier, they brought back his eye. As a sidebar, if you ever wondered where the all-seeing eye on your $1 bill comes from, this is the inspiration. The father was touched and started to cry. As his tears dropped onto the hill, they watered the fertile soil and gave birth to the first men and women. Unfortunately, these first humans had nowhere to live. There was a housing crisis on the primordial hill. Shu and Tifnut were siblings, but they were also married. But hey, it was a different time, okay? And they decided to have children, hoping they could help the humans. Their kids were the earth, called Geb, and the sky, called Nut. Though the earth and sky were siblings, they fell madly in love. But look, the dating pool for Egyptian gods was pretty shallow. What can I say? But Atum was unhappy with their ancestral ways, which is strange, considering he ignored that his two kids were married. Be that as it may, he pushed the sky high above, so it would forever be far from his beloved the earth. Tragically, They now saw each other every day, but could never touch. And so began the first long-distance relationship. Before they were so tragically separated, Geb impregnated Nut, and she gave birth to Osiris. Isis, Set, Nepethes, and Horus. So all the big stars of Egyptian mythology. Out of them, Osiris proved the most thoughtful and capable So Atum gave him the reins to run the world and went off to retire. Osiris wanted the people to be happy, so he created the ultimate home for them, one where the water flows freely 
and the trees sway in the breeze. That land was Egypt, and the river Nile was designed to provide for all the needs of the people living there. Creation stories are absolutely the best. I could have gone on with this one for a while, but it gets dirtier and weirder, uh, and I would take the episode way off track. But Egyptian mythology is wild and worth reading up on. Instead, let's take a look at real, non-legendary Egypt for a second. So, when we say ancient Egypt, um, what do we mean? Well, modern Egypt is a mostly desert country. It's over 386,000 square miles, making it the 30th biggest country in the world. But ancient Egypt was functionally quite a bit smaller, especially at first. It was limited to the northernmost 700 miles of the River Nile. And I'm sure you can imagine why uh, it stuck so closely to the Nile, at least at first. The Nile is not only a river that provides uh, drinking water, it also is a very unique river with properties that none of the other ones have. Essentially, it's very predictable. And planning and predictability are the friends of any farmer. And essentially, the Nile provides a natural and powerful form of irrigation that performed extremely well before irrigation had even been invented in the artificial sense. Indeed, one of the most important things to remember about ancient Egypt is that without the Nile, agriculture in all of the area would have been nearly impossible. Now, when we talk about Egypt, we are talking about two major parts. The first is Upper Egypt, which confusingly is the more southern valley between Nubia and the Delta. And then you have Lower Egypt, which is the north, which includes the northern Delta areas. And that's where the Nile washes into the Mediterranean. There's seasonal and regular flooding in the Delta, and most of the land there is submerged beneath the water in the summer. At least that's how it was before modern dams were constructed. The villagers lived on high points and connected them with bridges. So for a few months a year, it was like living in Venice or something. And this is how it worked. The source of the Egyptian section of the Nile is what's known as the Blue Nile that flows out of Ethiopia. The Ethiopian summer monsoon seasons flood the Blue Nile. The overflow goes rushing into Egypt. At that point, farmland becomes submerged. The water washes the salt out of the soil and replaces it with a layer of silt. This leaves a bountiful surface for crop planting. Indeed, in October and November is when the crops were sown. They would begin to ripen between January and April, depending on what you had planted. Over the years, agricultural methods improved. The locals used terraced methods to make the most of the fertility of their lands. They also learned to reclaim swamplands, which made even more arable territory around the Nile. The main crop that they grew was cereal, much like in Israel, but they also uh, grew emmer and barley, which were not as common in Israel, and they used barley primarily for beer, which was a major staple of ancient Egypt. Their diet also included lentils, chickpeas, lettuce, onions, garlic, and dates. In addition, they used honey regularly as a sweetener. Now, 
The agricultural revolution came to the Levant first, and later on to several other locations that we talked about. Egypt was left behind. After all, why bother with artificial agricultural methods when the Nile River was already providing a lot of food? Much more than enough for hunter-gatherers and even enough for um, some early farming. Cereals were not as severely needed with all the resources readily available there. The residents of that area, the Sibylian culture before agriculture in Egypt, were firmly in the classic Stone Age hunter-gatherer mode. They found the location around the Nile, especially the Nile Delta, provided them with a good environment. Their most important sources of sustenance were catfish and tubers from the roots of wetland plants. The fish they ate, they probably dried or smoked. That process allowed them to store fish for a few months. Date palm and acacia seeds completed their diet in the summer. During the autumn, the tubers of nutgrass and then of clubrush were harvested alongside flower buds of water lilies. Indeed, each step in the shift from foraging to farming occurred a millennia later in Egypt than the land of Israel. Again, probably because there was less need. Domesticated crops and animals were not used in Egypt until 6000 BCE. For the next 1000 years, agriculture would supplement hunter-gathering. Only around 5000 BCE did authentic agricultural villages appear in the Nile Delta. A thousand years later, agriculture also spread to Upper Egypt. The first Neolithic settlements popped up in Egypt around 8,000 years ago. Evidence shows that they moved from south to north, always centering on the Nile. That likely means the cultural influences of the first Egyptians came from the south, i.e. modern Sudan. If the primary vector of influence had been the Holy Land, we would expect the spread to go in the other direction. Around 5000 BCE, the Ma'adi culture emerged from those Neolithic societies in what would become Lower Egypt. Meanwhile, their Upper Egyptian equivalents were the Nagada. The differences between the two are very striking. Archaeological evidence in Lower Egypt consists mainly of settlements with very simple burials in cemeteries. It suggests a culture different from Upper Egypt where cemeteries with elaborate graves were found. Indeed, the spiritual and political worlds of the two areas were vastly different. The differences appear to have indicated also gaps in political sophistication. Those in Upper Egypt seem to have been very hierarchical. The graves there indicate a good deal of status competition. Every grave tries to be fancier than the last, and it gives us a picture of chieftains trying to one-up each other. Egyptologist Catherine Bard noted, The importation of exotic materials for craft goods found in burials may have become a political strategy, and the control of prestige goods would have reinforced the position of a chief among his supporters. The cultures in Upper Egypt were closely linked to the Nubians in the south, and that's where they got many of the luxuries they enjoyed, including ivory, ebony, incense, and exotic animal skins. The closeness in culture to Nubia has led some to speculate that they were an offshoot of that kingdom in what is today Sudan. Eventually, 
the more egalitarian northern culture disappeared. It made way for the stratified world of Upper Egypt. Unfortunately, we're going to see this repeatedly. The less equal societies tend to triumph due to specialization and superior resource extraction. So the trend in early civilizations is towards greater inequality and despotism. And we certainly got a lot of both in ancient Egypt. The exact process by which Upper Egypt became dominant is still unclear. It involved settlement and military conquest. However, the order and dynamic between the two is not known, and many researchers believe it will never be known. Once the territory had been united, the Egyptian kings, not known as pharaohs quite yet, faced an unprecedented challenge. Governing this large united kingdom was difficult, especially with the minimal technology available at that time. So the Egyptians increased and improved their bureaucratic capacity accordingly. One major innovation in this direction was writing. It emerged in Egypt around 3000 BCE in the form of hieroglyphic scripts. As a result, the social organizations around the Nile became more complex. And as a side note, that's one of the reasons that we're doing this episode about Egypt, because what we're going to find is that over the next period, the only culture that was writing about the land of Israel was the Egyptian culture, because they had developed uh, this skill. And it wouldn't be until a while later that we see it also develop among the Canaanites. And we'll talk about that. Another advance that the Egyptians came up with was building what seems to have been their capital city, the city of Memphis. And aside from its fantastic barbecue and serving as the home of Elvis, it was also the home of the king. An extraordinary city indeed. And out of Memphis came a bureaucratic system of clerks and departments that seems shockingly modern when we consider how long ago all this was happening. Central administration linked up to regional administrative centers. In other words, something incredible was happening in Egypt. We already tend to think of ancient Egypt as mysteriously grand. Mostly that is because of their incomparable monumental architecture. You may already know this, but the Great Pyramid in Giza was the tallest building on earth for 3,800 years, finally unseated by the Lincoln Cathedral in England in 1311. No wonder people think aliens built it. However, according to Wikipedia, the Tower of Jericho held the title for a little bit longer with a 4,000-year reign. But as a student of politics, architecture isn't what I find most impressive here. Egypt formed an expansive empire which lasted, with the occasional interruption, for 3,000 years. They did so despite having no precedent for what a big government or empire would look like. Sure, a bit earlier a kingdom had been established in Sumer, but that was very far away, almost in the Persian Gulf, and on a much smaller scale. And the Egyptians could not have been particularly aware of what was going on there, and even if they were, what they built was very different. We will discuss Sumer and its relations to Canaanite culture in a future episode. But getting back to Egypt, they basically operated using a blank slate. Catherine Bard explains, the unified state which emerged in Egypt in the 3rd millennium BCE is unlike the polities in Mesopotamia, the Levant, northern Syria, or early Bronze Age Palestine. 
It's different in socio-political organization, material culture, and belief system. There was undoubtedly heightened commercial contact with Southwest Asia in the late 4th millennium BCE, but the early dynastic state which emerged in Egypt was unique and indigenous in character. In other words, Egypt came up with its own culture and political approach. It's just awe-inspiring, considering that they had no template to take from. And also, the pyramids are a reflection of the political sophistication and the ability of the pharaohs to pool together resources. So what you're really seeing when you see the pyramids is a testament to the functioning of this system. So knowing how this turned out, let's see how it all started. The jump from agriculture to a developed and well-built state was incredibly fast, almost miraculous by the standards of the time. In other parts of the world, things were very different. About 5,000 years between agriculture and a functioning kingdom are the laps that we see in the land of Israel or in Mesopotamia, but in Egypt, it only took them a 1,000 years. So what's behind this incredible jump forward and this unique Egyptian approach to politics and the world. The main cause of this Egyptian miracle appears to be geographic. Theoreticians of early state building have often noted a tie between agriculture and the formation of the state. There's a traditional theory on how societies develop. In his highly influential book, Man Makes Himself, V. Gordon Child explained that the earliest societies were the product of agricultural surpluses. His argument was simple. If you have enough food to feed non-farmers, you can build a bureaucracy to manage production, protect it, and tax it. From there, the distance to a functioning state is short. But that's not sufficient. There's another condition that all early states seem to have had in common. They are limited to a specific, logistically governable territory. And they have another thing in common. They are all areas of circumscribed agricultural land. So you have fertile land set off by mountains, seas, or deserts on all sides. These environmental features sharply delimit the extent that simple farming people could occupy and cultivate. Why does that matter? And what does it mean? Well, when farmland is surrounded by geographic obstacles, uh, that allows them to be more easily taxed and controlled. You need to have enough arable land for them to be able to sustain a society, but not the un kind of unlimited land that allows you to escape from the control of government. In Egypt's case, the fertile areas were delineated by the foreboding desert. The further you got away from the Nile, the less hospitable the terrain. And that helped the Egyptian kings establish control. In other parts of the world, things were very different. In Brazil or North America, arable land went on for long distances. So chieftains had a lot less leverage and a lot less control. And settlers or farmers had a lot more freedom. After all, this is elementary economics. When labor is scarce and land is abundant, land does not command great value. Instead, it's the labor that's valuable. When land is scarce and labor is productive, 
The worker is close to worthless, and the land is where it's at. The concentration of farmland in a circumscribed controllable area allowed Egyptian elites to tax it more easily and patrol it more easily. There are several factors behind this change. One, storability. Hunter-gatherer food is perishable, but a good deal of agricultural products can be stored in silos. Meanwhile, farm animals were a tangible and asset lasting through the years. So farmers had worthwhile food stocks, and those were recordable and taxable. So you could much more easily tax a farmer than you could a hunter-gatherer. The increase in population density made it far more appealing to tax the population. According to one estimate, once agriculture was introduced, the Nile Delta could support 120 individuals per square kilometer. When it was in the hunter-gatherer period, it could support 30 hunter-gatherers for that uh, size at most. Finally, the cycle of the Nile. Farming near the Nile is unique. From July through to the early autumn, the river floods the farmlands and leaves the farmer with little to do. This allows the government to use local farmers as a workforce, soldiers, forced labor. This was a significant factor in their ability to marshal large numbers of troops and later on workers for the pyramids and other grand construction projects. So all of this made taxing and control more likely and it made taxing and control more appealing to um, elites. After all, if you're a farmer in Egypt, there was no way you could move out of the Nile Delta or at least from the proximity of the Nile. Theoretically, you could try your luck in the desert, but that was adopting a whole different lifestyle and the nearby deserts could only support a limited number of people. And conditions in the desert only got worse over the years. Between 15,000 and 3,000 BCE, the desert allowed light seasonal hunting and grazing at most. In 3,400 BCE, the desert started to become much less hospitable. And the few people living in the desert at that time served as bandits. The growing military forces often launched operations against the people living there, making their existence incredibly difficult. Estimates are that only about 50,000 people tried to live in the desert and had very difficult lives. Meanwhile, the agricultural settlements that made up most of Egypt grew to 1.5 million by 3000 BCE. Most homesteaders were stuck paying taxes to the government. There was nowhere to flee. Why would you flee, you might ask? After all, who wouldn't be honored to be a citizen of the greatest empire on earth? Well, imperialism and statehood, both then and now, are built on a good amount of exploitation. I'll let Robert C. Allen of the University of British Columbia describe this element of Egyptian governance. Quote, The Pharaoh and his family, a host of officials, priests, scribes, and private landowners, who were also often officials, were supported by the Egyptian peasantry and absorbed a considerable fraction of the country's output. Despite the pharaoh's control of the floods, or his claim to control the floods, it isn't easy to discern any productive contribution the pharaoh made. 
or that the priesthood made, or that the aristocracy made. The main function of the pharaonic state was to transfer a considerable fraction of the income produced by Egypt's farmers to an unproductive aristocracy. End quote. In other words, to a significant degree, the elites in Egypt were parasites on the farmers, but they trapped the farmers by geography and the force of arms, and those poor farmers had nowhere to go. So keeping the masses under control was the name of the game for the pharaohs. And they did so in a three-step program. Step one, control labor mobility by tying people to the land. Kind of like the medieval institution of feudalism. Two, impose a more or less uniform taxation level across the country so that farmers could not escape it by moving. Third, the state took charge of settling vacant areas to assure the population was best spread to protect and fund the state and to stop farmers from relocating on their own. Uh, but the main element that helped them keep control was the Nile. It linked small Egyptian villages to parts of Africa far and wide. It encouraged a more ambitious worldview. It allowed officials to go easily between upper and lower Egypt. It also helped promote trade and facilitate the spread of new ideas. The essential idea that sprang out of Egypt was the idea of divine monarchy. It's different from absolute monarchy in the European sense because the monarch was a god for the ancient Egyptians. The Egyptian god-king guaranteed the continued fertility of the Nile and was judged by this element over which he had very little control. It kind of reminds me of how we judge our presidents according to the price of oil. And judging kings by the fertility of the land and the weather is an element that we also know from ancient China, but is also a familiar part of the culture in uh, Nubia in Sudan, and therefore also feeds into this idea that the connection between the Egyptian elites and the Sudanese elites were very close. As a living god, the domain of the Egyptian monarch was potentially limitless. This was millennia before the idea of a fixed border. So with a living god leader, who is to stop him from expanding the borders? Therefore, the Egyptian political entity was highly expansionist from the get-go. We see an exciting dichotomy between development in Egypt and Canaan. The later was the product of natural forces of food supply and demand and trade routes location. And we'll talk about that in the next episode. In Egypt, that dynamic was present. However, it was heavily supplemented by the political needs of an emerging kingdom. Therefore, we see individuals appointed for office in an intentionally constructed hierarchical society. That allowed the Egyptians to create impressive public works that eventually built the pyramids. So we're going to continue to see this. In Canaan, we have centrifugal forces, we have a certain amount of civil society and um, lack of coercion and control locally because local governments are weak. In Egypt, the government is strong and coercive. And what we're going to see in the next couple of episodes is the Egyptian attempt to bring that coercion into Canaan and see how those two uh, worlds play off each other. Military coercion was an essential element of maintaining state authority in Egypt. 
but it's only one component. Leaders everywhere have traditionally, and oftentimes very successfully, convinced their population to follow them, and that the interests of the elite are their own interests. Well, who got to rule Egypt? The area started with local chieftains responsible for a collection of farmsteads, most likely with family-based clanship at the center. They began to compete for broader domination. Barry Kemp, an Egyptologist, compares this process to a game of Monopoly, and I like that analogy. After all, these games always start with a long and tedious process of accumulation. Do you have Atlantic Avenue? I'll take that. At some point, as the tedium builds, the momentum switches imperceptibly to one of the players. Soon everyone is paying them way too much rent. Maybe they cheated. Maybe they didn't. But pretty soon, everyone else quits and vows never to play Monopoly again. What happened in Egypt is a bit like that. Remember when we talked about pre-dynastic graves in Upper Egypt and how they tried to outdo each other? That is some strong evidence of this Monopoly-style game taking place over centuries. They used religion to consolidate their power as well. The gods who were at the center of the Egyptian pantheon were likely local ones used by contending chieftains to advance their legitimacy. The god Horus appeared in local versions in pre-dynastic Egypt. Towards the end of that period, we find the first evidence of the god Osiris in the north. The ideology of ancient Egypt is truly fascinating. It is, of course, not the topic of this podcast, but it is worth a mention. The early art of Egyptian kings focused on animals, most often two fierce beasts in harmony. For example, wild dogs, lions, and predatory birds. Egyptologists believe these were metaphors for political harmony between conflicting parts of society. Indeed, since the state was the only force able to commission art on a grand scale, it makes sense that it served a political need. Another element which would survive in later Egyptian art is the orderliness of the figures. Think about the Egyptian art that you know. We often imagine rows of figures placed in a neat line. They also include some of the wildest animals imaginable. The message appears clear. No matter how fantastic or special you are, you have a designated role in greater society. It is a message of subsuming uniqueness under the yoke of social conformity and political rigidity. And nothing sums up the Egyptian political creed more than that. We can see a pretty clear homage to coercion in the Narmer palette. This was a find of incredible importance. From about 31 centuries ago, it has also somehow been preserved in almost perfect condition. I'll put pictures of the palette up on Twitter and Facebook for your perusal. The Narmer palette contains the first known use of hieroglyphics. This is about 200 years after Sumer's first known use of writing. The most common interpretation of this artifact is that it was made to commemorate the unification of Lower and Upper Egypt. For our purposes, it's the iconography that really stands out. The palette shows a powerful-looking king, Narmer, and he's lifting a royal mace with his right hand. On his left, he's pulling up a kneeling captive by the hair. On one side of the palette, Narmer is wearing the red crown, symbolizing Lower Egypt. 
On the other side, he's wearing the white crown, symbolizing Upper Egypt. This early artistic representation shows the ideology of ancient Egypt in full force. As Barry Kemp describes it, containment, though not ultimate defeat of disorder and unrule, was possible through the rule of kings and the benign presence of a supreme divine force manifested in the powers of heaven. The intellectual view of the nature of the universe coincided with the structure of political power, end quote. This would serve as a template for ideologies throughout history, signifying the marriage of the crown and church in maintaining order. When those two are united, they can make the common people do anything. The palette also carries the royal insignia, which is a composite hieroglyphic symbol standing for the king, crown, state, and the state's property. It represents the need for different areas of the country to come together, most notably Egypt, Upper Egypt, and the Nile Delta. It also may have shown how different classes in Egypt should unite for the greatness of the whole. So we started early in our examination of Egypt. The standard Egyptian histories start at the foundation of the first dynasty. It's a natural starting point for 3,000 years of remarkable history. The first dynasty also marks the transition, or appears to, from a wild area filled with clans into a unified kingdom, ready to lead the world. But like all dramatic changes discussed in this podcast, it may not have seemed like a change at the time. To the local, uh, normal Egyptian farmer, they continued to pay taxes and work as they always had when the kingdom was quote-unquote unified and became a great power. So why do we mark this as the beginning of dynastic Egypt? Simple. The king list that is still used today by all Egyptologists notes that this is when the first Egyptian king, Menes, ruled. Now, regarding Menes, we have great expectations when we hear of the first king of the historical kingdom. Personally, I think of Osman the Great or Genghis Khan. But there are no particular legends surrounding Menes. All this suggests that rather than some remarkable hero who united the Delta and Upper Egypt, he was the first recorded king in a long process of organic state formation. That also, ironically, makes it more likely Menes was real rather than symbolic. Others believe Menes is actually another name for Narmer, whose palette we already discussed. Either way, the United Egyptian Kingdom was now the most powerful actor the world had ever seen. And very quickly, it would set its sights on the land of Israel. Indeed, Canaan would become the first colony of the Egyptian Empire. But the story of its rule in Israel and the Canaanite people it would soon dominate, we'll have to wait for the next episode. Before we finish, I want to give a special shout-out to my listeners in Chicago. Aside from my home base of L.A., that seems to have our highest concentration of listeners. So thank you so much. As you may remember, the podcast now has an email account. So if you have any questions or comments, email me at historylandisrael at gmail.com. That's historylandisrael at gmail.com. Remember to follow us on Twitter and Facebook and see you on the History of the Land of Israel podcast in our next episode.